while in years past, apologetic studies have oftentimes uh, given great attention to false religions or the subject of evolution or differing approaches to apologetics itself, all of which are helpful and useful, when of course done in accordance with sound doctrine, recent years, at least for me, have brought to light the growing need for Christians to be ready to give a reason for why they don't believe the culture's latest doctrinal fads. Sadly, there are many professing Christians that have come to embrace the culture's lies. Lies that stand in sharp contrast to the truth that's professed in Scripture. And like a crack in the windshield that can start off small but then grows and grows, embracing such error does not lead anywhere good. It's as though the professing Christian risks the death of a Christian worldview by a thousand cuts. Cuts equated to the open-handed reception of lies packaged as truth. Now this series is not an attempt to give an extended review of the history, proponents, prominent proponents, and the intramural debates that exist within the sphere of the different subject matter that will be considered, though at times we will do more of that than others. The aim is simple, to get to the heart of an issue and then evaluate it in light of Scripture. That is the aim. The warning that the Apostle Paul issued to the Colossians, I think, has great application for us when he wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. This series is an attempt to take concepts and words and ideas and philosophies and to bring those things in subjection to Christ and to see those things through the lens of Scripture, God's Word. Now the first subject we'll consider is the subject of privilege. Privilege. In recent years, the term privilege has become a kind of buzzword that's used in conjunction with critical race theory or identity politics or racist anti-racism movements. It's often used with reference to groups that are in the majority of a society slash groups believed to be at the top of a power hierarchy within society. Now, the term itself essentially refers to any supposed benefits that one group has over and above another group. So, for instance, where one group is said to have, say, greater opportunity for upward economic mobility, the greater that margin of opportunity is their privilege. Oftentimes, proponents of critical race theory rage against the existence of privilege. But how does the Bible view it? First, the Bible makes it clear that in God's providence, there will not exist an equality of privilege in this world. God ordains the exact times and boundaries in which people live. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And as a result of His, His sovereign superintending of history people will have differing levels of privilege. Those, for instance, who lived during the Dark Ages would look at those of us who live in the 21st century and they would acknowledge that on many, many levels we have much greater privileges than they did. Those living during the Old Covenant context, 
if they were to affirm the truth rightly, they would say that Israel had greater privilege than any other nation in the world. As the Apostle Paul noted in Romans chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? And then he would go on and say, much in every way. In fact, Yahweh declared in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, that He chose Israel out of and above all the nations of the earth. Furthermore, Old Testament saints did not have the privilege of revelation that New Testament saints enjoy. And the examples could go on and on. There will be children who will be born with two parents. There will be children that will be born with one parent. There will be children that will be born with different physical attributes than another child. Some will have greater strengths. Some will have limitations. Some will be born in different geographic locations that will undergo different circumstances. For example, say wildfires or earthquakes, etc. And all of those variables and a seemingly innumerable host of others ensure the impossibility of an equality of privilege. Now it goes to show that from God's vantage point, not only is the existence of differing measures of privilege not sinful, but there must be so much more to life than privilege. Now second, you cannot assume that the existence of privilege necessarily assumes that a privileged person is privileged and as a result of that privilege, is oppressing a less privileged person. So you cannot assume that a privileged person is oppressing a less privileged person. If the mere existence of differences in privilege necessitated the sin of either oppression, right, just the existence of um, different measures of privilege, if that necessitated oppression, or if it necessitated the sin of indifference, either way, the alleviation of differences of privileges would be a biblical mandate. But there is no such biblical mandate. There's no warrant for governing magistrates to enforce an equality of privilege. There is no mandate for local church pastors to manufacture an equality of privilege. And we'll see more of this when we get into our study of communism. But think about the instruction that the Apostle Paul gave through Timothy to New Testament Christians who were rich. You can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. The rich were commanded to do good and be rich in good works and to share, but that wasn't a manufactured imposition of them denouncing their privilege and coming to a place of economic equality with those in the local church where they were. They were to do that out of Christ-honoring act of love, a Christ-honoring act of love. And it was not manufactured and it was not imposed. Think about the New Testament church. In the New Testament church, you had rich and poor Christians alike. You had Christian slaves and Christian masters worshiping alongside of one another. They shared the greatest of all privileges, namely equality of sonship in Jesus Christ. And they were not mandated to equalize all the lower privileges. They shared the greatest and they were not mandated to equalize all of the lower temporal ones. Now third, it should not be assumed that a person has their privilege as a result of other people being oppressed in previous generations and thus must make restitutions for wrongs committed by others 
who have long since passed away against people who have long since passed away. It would be impossible, impossible to quantify what opportunities were lost or how the trajectory of people's lives were changed as a result of wrongs committed against previous generations. Think of this, for example. How do you quantify the murder of a person's or the effects of a murder of a person's great-grandfather during the infancy of that person's grandfather and the effect that that would have on subsequent generations? How do you quantify that? How do you begin to do an analysis of what would have been if that person's great-grandfather didn't die during the infancy of that person's grandfather? You can go on and you could ask, does the murderer's great-grandson owe something to the victim's great-grandson? Not according to the rule of Scripture. Deuteronomy 24.16, Ezekiel 18.20. There you see the principle that a father shall not be punished for the sins of a son, and the son shall not be punished for the sins of a father. To use language from Ezekiel 18.20, a man's righteousness shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon themselves. Furthermore, how do you account for the differences in things like work ethic, or natural ability, and providential opportunity when comparing two allegedly oppressed individuals from the same community that had significantly different outcomes? Now, I say that to say privilege can result from a number of things unrelated to oppression. And rather than cultivating privilege envy, which is sin, every human being is called to humble themselves before the God who determines when, where, and how long people live. And regardless of the privilege that one does or doesn't have, to borrow some language from Acts 17.27, They are not far away from repenting of their sin and receiving the greatest of all privileges. Forgiveness through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then as sons and daughters of the living God, in light of Luke chapter 12, verse 48, doubtless we would be those who have received much. And to those who have been given much, much is required. And we are called, in light of Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, to do good to all men, especially the household of faith. And we are to do good, not as a penance for privilege, but we are to do good out of gospel-rooted love for men and women and most ultimately for God. That's why you are to do good. Not as some sort of penance for privilege, but out of gospel-rooted love. So that's the topic of privilege. You'll hear that word brought up a lot. Check your privilege. And different statements made with respect to privilege. But how does the Bible view privilege? And that gives you a synopsis of the Scripture's view of privilege. And there will not be an equality of privilege in this world. And oftentimes, just as an aside, oftentimes when you see political leaders who use that as kind of a clarion call for the masses, it's usually a covert call for communism, which ends up working really well for the ruling class and then bringing everybody to a lower class of degradation. That's a little bit of an aside. So, Because you're not going to have an equality of privilege, and you are to do good, not as some sort of penance for your presumed privilege, but just out of love for God and love for men and women. All right, let's come to a second topic, and that's the subject of oppression. Oppression. Now, whether it concerns critical race theory or intersectionality, it is rather common to hear terms like oppression or oppressor or oppressed. 
There are oppressor races that are spoken of, oppressor classes that are spoken of, oppressive systems or structures. And perhaps you've already noticed one glaringly obvious problem with these identifications. Namely, it identifies entire ethnic groups, social classes, and systems as oppressors. And you're painting with a very broad brush when you do that. Now, if the shoe fits, then the shoe fits. But that's going to take quite a bit of evidence to make that case. And if you are going to make that case, it has to be far more than anecdotal stories, passionate assertions based upon feelings, selected historical examples, and a pseudo-mystical knowledge of what people really think without the evidence that they think it. So if that shoe is going to fit, you need a lot more than that. For the moment, we'll give our attention to the idea of oppression from a biblical perspective. So when you're hearing that term thrown out, they are oppressors, this is oppression, you want to say, what does the Bible have to say about oppression? I don't want the culture defining for me oppression. I want to see how they're defining it, and then I want to understand what the Bible says. What is oppression from a biblical point of view? And we're going to see that in great detail today. First, let me just say, oppression is not being in the minority of a population. Right? If you're in the demographic minority of a population, that does not equate to being oppressed. And for example, in the Old Testament, you see God issue prophetic oracles, not only to Israel, but to the nations. You could look at Amos, for instance. And in the opening chapters of Amos, you'll see nation after nation on the receiving end of oracles from Yahweh. And God didn't say, for instance, Moab, Edom, Philistia, and Tyre, make sure that you intermingle with one another, ensuring that there is an equivalent of demographics within each of your nations, whereby there shall be no hegemony where a majority group has greater privileges than those who are in the minority. If such disparity necessarily equated to oppression and sin that would have been one of the ways in which the nations, yet alone Israel, would have demonstrated repentance. Because if the mere existence of those demographic differences necessitated oppression, then you would have to get rid of it, and it would be mandated. But we don't see that. But back to the idea of how does the Bible define and identify oppression? I want you to take a little bit of a journey with me, because there are different words that are used in the Old Testament that can be translated as oppression. A number of Hebrew words. I've gone through each one of them and the instances in which they are used. And I want to give you a synopsis in this moment of how they are used. So what follows is a survey of both prominent and less prominent ones. And it will become rather uh, clear rather quickly that there is a general theme that accompanies each of these words. So there's the Hebrew word lakats. Lakats. It's used ten times in the Old Testament. It referred to being under the cruel slavery of Pharaoh, right? Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. I won't give you all the references because there's a lot of them, but I'll give you some of the references. It referred to being under the cruel slavery of the king of Aram in a place like 2 Kings chapter 13. It described affliction associated with meager provisions of bread and water in prison. In 1 Kings 22-27, you'll notice that a lot of these descriptions of oppression have enduring consequences. They go on for a while as well. That's something else to note. It refers to distress associated with an enemy, Psalm 42, verse 9. Distress associated with an ungodly nation, Psalm 43, verse 1. 
distress resulting from deceitful and unjust individuals, distress resulting from trouble bringing hateful and violent individuals. It was associated with loss in military battle, Psalm 44, verses 9 and 10, being taken captive, Psalm 44, verses 11 and 12, or being killed all day long like sheep to the slaughter, same Psalm, verse 22. And it was at times a national punishment for Israel's sin. Isaiah 30, verse 20. Now, it's a different word. There are many different words uh, in the Hebrew. The word oshek, it's used 15 times in the Old Testament. It can be translated as oppression. It's sometimes translated as extortion. You see it translated as extortion in places like Leviticus 6.4. It fits well there. Ezekiel 22, verse 12. It's often connected to robbery. You see that in Psalm 62, verse 10. Ezekiel 22, verse 29. It's connected with violent oppression of the poor. Violent oppression of the poor and the perversion of justice. Ecclesiastes 5.8. It's referring in context to corruption via bribery. Ecclesiastes 7.7 refers to, or it's in the context of, speaking lies to the end of turning back justice and violence and plundering. Now, some of the less frequently used words that are translated as oppression. Trust me, when you go through this whole series of how the Bible defines oppression, it's going to help a lot when we get to the end of this section. The Hebrew word tok, it's used three times in the Old Testament. It's connected with deceit, Psalm 10, verse 7, Psalm 55, verse 11, and violence, yet again, violence, Psalm 72, verse 14. The Hebrew word merutza is used once in connection with violence and the shedding of blood. That's the only time it's used, Jeremiah 22, verse 17. There's the word ashukim, which is used five times in the Old Testament, oftentimes in a kind of general way, But it is connected in Amos chapter 3, verse 9, with robbery and violence. Then there's the word ashka. It's used one time in Isaiah 38, verse 14. And it could be, uh, it's essentially referring to there of uh, when Hezekiah is speaking of his impending death. So it's associated with what he perceives to be at that time his impending death. Then there's a word that's used, altser. It's used three times in the Old Testament. It can be translated as barren, like in Proverbs 30, verse 16. It's used with reference to being brought low in affliction and sorrow, Psalm 107, verse 39. And it's actually also used in Isaiah 53 to speak of the Messiah, of how he would suffer. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isaiah 53, verse 8. It speaks of how Jesus was unjustly condemned through an unjust legal process. The Hebrew word avatah is used once in the Old Testament. That's in Lamentations 3.59. It can be translated as oppression there. It's used there in conjunction with being uh, wronged or vengeance and schemes. There's the Hebrew word mashakah. It's used twice with reference to a tyrannical leader in Proverbs 28.16 and an association with the gains that come from bribes and enacting injustice, Isaiah 33, verse 15. And finally, finally, there's the word akah, used one time in the Old Testament, Psalm 55, verse 3, and it is used in connection with trouble and wrath and deceit and betrayal when you look at the surrounding context. Suffice it to say, oppression is not being in the minority of a population. It's not a subjective feeling of being unaccepted. 
It's not having less than someone else who by virtue of having more must be an oppressor. And it isn't an action that someone unconsciously does without some corresponding violence or intentionality or cruelty that is oppressive. Rather, when you look at all of the times this word is used, exceptions being when it refers to being barren, maybe an exception when it's speaking of Hezekiah looking at his impending death, this word refers to, or these words refer to, oppression refers to essentially the verifiable suffering that results from someone else's active engagement in cruel mistreatment of one kind or another. I'll say that again. Oppression, when you kind of look at all these examples, is essentially the verifiable suffering that results from someone else's active engagement in cruel mistreatment of one kind or another. So a Christian should not paste over the primary definition of oppression when you look at the Bible and then put the culture's woeful definition that wickedly, oftentimes, indicts entire demographics of people as oppressors just by virtue of, say, the color of their skin. By virtue of the color of their skin, they are oppressors. Do they meet the biblical definition of oppression? If not, then you're engaging in slander. Well, that system... That system, that's an oppressive system. Are you appealing to times where there were wrongs? We're going to speak about that. We're not going to hide from the wrongs that were done in, say, for example, the United States of America, but you can refer to a lot of places throughout world history. But if there is a verifiable evidence of oppression within the system, it should be easily identified, and every Christian would raise their hands and say, that's wrong and that should not be done. We are for equality of justice. The Mosaic Law was for equality of justice. God is for equality of justice. But you can't go around slandering people and classes and individuals and even systems as being oppressors when they don't fit the biblical definition. And Christians shouldn't go along with that kind of thing. It's wrong. You've seen it. I just walked you through just about every reference that could be given in the Old Testament for oppression. And you see how it's defined. It's connected with cruelty or captivity or enslavement or extortion. These are ways in which it is used. So that brings to the second point. It is wrong and it is slanderous and it is wicked to indict entire groups of people as Oppressors when they don't meet the biblical definition of that identification. It is a sinful attempt to falsely label and as a result defame entire demographics of people. It's bearing false witness against people. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16. And lying lips are something that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 and 17. In fact, he identifies lying lips as an abomination to him. In Proverbs chapter 12 verse 22. Now, wherever slander emerges from, whether it be from jealousy, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, it is sin. And not to mention, it falsely justifies the anger of the so-called oppressed towards the oppressor as though it's righteous indignation when in reality it's sinful anger. And drawing relevant application from the Mosaic Law, Christians should not be participating in circulating a false report. They should not put their hands with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Exodus 23, verse 10. Now let me be clear. While we need to be on guard against such vain philosophies that would do this, slandering people and ethnic groups, labeling them as oppressors or, or oppressed, right? You could slander either way. You could slanderize people and call them oppressed when they're not. You could slanderize people and call them oppressors when they're not without biblical warrant. 
as Christians who have been saved from the oppression of sin, well, what do we do? Well, first, in light of this topic, we just want to speak the truth. You know, I'm not going to use the culture's woeful definition for, for oppression. We're going to use the Scripture's definition. But please make no mistake. I'm not saying that there isn't a place to speak out for the oppressed. There is. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead for the poor and needy. We should be those who advocate for the oppressed. But who are the oppressed? Who meets the biblical definition of the oppressed? Where should we be speaking truth? Right? We are about the gospel. The gospel is central. But as we've said so many times here before, and I'll say it again now, we are about the gospel and the truth that is inseparable to that gospel. And that would mean that we preach the gospel, but we want to preach all Scripture in so much as we can because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And we want to preach the gospel that men and women are justified by grace through faith, but we also want to do what Jesus told His disciples to do, to teach men to obey everything that He has commanded them. And when you look at a place like Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, and we're told to open our mouths for the speechless in the cause of those who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the case of the poor and needy. Jeremiah 22.3 says something similar. The question would be, who fits that description? The culture doesn't define who fits, who fits that description. The Scriptures do. And one, if you want some examples of who fits that description, it would be, for example, though it's not limited to this, Christians in Afghanistan. That's a good example of those who are oppressed. Those who are going around right now and they are on the brink of death because they are oppressed by a regime that is looking to kill them for their faith. Not just them. You could think about the Uyghurs in China. That's an example of an oppressed group. You could think of those who have been on the receiving end of the evil done through predatory lending. That's an oppressed group. Because they fit the biblical description. And that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about the people of God, not just saying, well, the culture says that this group is oppressed and these group are oppressors. No. You say the scripture identifies as oppressors as people like Pharaoh or people who extort others. That's how the scripture identifies oppressors. The scripture doesn't identify oppressors just simply upon their, by, by their race. Oh, they were Egyptians, therefore they all are oppressors. No, the scripture does not do that. And if you do that, that is slander and it is wicked and you are bearing false witness. And if you start calling people who are oppressed that God does not identify as oppressed, that is wrong and that is wicked. If somebody is oppressed like those aforementioned examples, Christians in Afghanistan, the Uyghurs in China, those who have been on the receiving end of predatory loans and have lost so much and have been abused, those are the ones that you pray about and you speak out about. And it's not limited to them. Children who are the victims of child trafficking. What about the unborn? See, as Christians, and you'll notice that a lot of these things we do speak out about because we pray about it during times in pastoral prayer. Christians are on the front lines oftentimes of speaking to these issues. And yet the culture would say, you do not stand with the oppressed. Because the culture has redefined oppression. And then Christians are made to think, wow, the Bible says a lot about standing up for the oppressed. Therefore, I guess the only way to do it is to stand up for those whom the culture is telling me to stand up for. You want to do good to all men. You want to slander no one. But you want to make sure that you don't adopt the culture's definitions and you stick with the Bible's definitions. And this could lead to a lot of bad places. Um, I could give you a bunch of examples. Um, 
I'll just give you, I'll give you one because I don't want to. You probably have seen enough uh, examples, but um, in the New York Post, for instance, um, one writer, he noted how in Springfield, Missouri, a middle school forced teachers to locate themselves on an oppression matrix based on the idea that straight, white, English-speaking Christian males are members of the oppressor class and must atone for their privilege and covert white supremacy. See, now what I'm doing by and large is I'm giving you the, the kind of the biblical answers to these issues, but these examples could mount up very quickly. We could spend a whole morning, I could just give you example of example of what's going on in school systems, what first graders are being taught, what is happening on, in college campuses and how students are being indoctrinated with these things. That's one example. Imagine being a teacher and you have to identify yourself on an oppression matrix and you have to identify as part of the oppressor class just by virtue of being straight, white, English speaking and a Christian male. Even though you don't fit the biblical description of an oppressor. You see why this is important? All right. Third topic for today. Might catch it by surprise. Aliens. <laughs> aliens. We live in a day where we need to talk about aliens. <laughs> One of the topics that has recently caught the interest of people afresh is the subject of aliens. The concept is not a new one. As a child, I can remember my share of alien-oriented cartoons and films. But with the increasing news coverage of UFOs, right, unidentified flying objects, or UAPs, unexplained aerial phenomenon, with this news coverage kind of making its rounds, I think it's important for Christians to think through this subject through biblical lenses. Now, in an evolutionary worldview, alien life is to be expected. Right? With all the planets and galaxies that comprise the universe, isn't it reasonable to think that in a chance universe, that life would not only be found on Earth, but other places? Couldn't there have been similar variables of time, motion, matter, and chance somewhere else to spark life there, wherever there is, even as it sparked life here? Suffice it to say, there are a myriad of problems with this perspective from a biblical perspective view. Now, leaving aside the biblical case for a six-day creation about 6,000 years ago, which in future weeks, Lord willing, I will make, and leaving aside the abundance of scientific, geological, astronomic evidence that supports it, we'll cut right to the chase of aliens. First, contrary to an evolutionary worldview, the earth is not simply one planet among a seemingly innumerable multitude. The earth is unique. Speaking of the earth, the prophet Isaiah wrote, God speaking through him, that God designed the earth, he formed the earth to be inhabited. He formed the earth to be inhabited. There's a reason why we don't find life on other planets. They're not earth. God designed earth to be inhabited. In fact, when you look at the creation account, you even see the uniqueness of earth in the creation account. When was the earth created? Day one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When was the rest of what populates, if you will, all of the galaxies created? Day four. The sun, the moon, and the stars. 
And as Jason Lyle has noted, that word that's used there in the Hebrew for stars can refer to any light-reflecting object in the heavens. So that could be something like the moon, and you see the Bible even use that same word in that way in a place like Ezekiel 32, verse 7. Or it could refer to planets. You could look up at night and you could see stars, and you also see in the night sky shining at times, Venus. So what's said in Isaiah, that God formed the earth to be inhabited, is illustrated in Genesis by virtue of saying this, the earth is special. The earth is not just one planet among so many. It was created on day one in distinction from everything else created that populates the heavens. And God designed the earth to be inhabited. That could be enough right there, but let's go further. Second, one runs into a serious theological conundrum if they conceive of intelligent extraterrestrial life capable of moral and rational choices. Such beings would not be able to be redeemed. The Son of God did not take on the nature of angels, nor did he take on the nature of hypothetical extraterrestrials. He took on human flesh and he died once and for all for the sins of his people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. To think of Jesus taking on alien form, because somebody might say, well, maybe he, you know, he did that, right? Like, like close to 2,000 years ago. And maybe since then, he's gone and taken on the form of extraterrestrials somewhere else. And maybe there's a whole redemption story that we don't know about. And he went and he took on an additional nature, an additional form, and he's died for alien creatures in some other place. We've got two big problems with that, at least. That adds another nature to Christ, which contradicts what the Scripture tells us about him. And it would also create another death for the Son of God, who per the Scripture does not offer himself repeatedly. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. He did so one time. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And he lives forevermore. Revelation 1.18, never to die again. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. And third, and this is kind of a supplemental point, but I do think it's helpful. Consider what the scripture says about the creatures and beings that do constitute the universe. You could look from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and you see different creatures or beings identified. You see angels and demons. You see human beings, men and women. You see insects and animals. You see fish and you see birds and so on. You see all these different creatures presented in scripture. And when you go throughout the whole history that's presented in Scripture, whether it's from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, you don't see aliens identified. Furthermore, when the Bible presents the climax of history, after the heavens are rolled up like a scroll and the elements are dissolved with fervent heat, there is still nothing said of aliens. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem. His servants will serve him. Revelation 22, verse 3, we know the angels will be present, even in light of what's seen earlier in Revelation. But again, from creation to the eternal state, even though there are so many forms of life depicted, alien life is not. Now, you and I may not be able to explain every curious, blurry bit of imagery that we see identified as unexplained aerial phenomenons. And despite the fact that there are many, note this, there are many potential explanations for the aforementioned images. But besides that fact, the word of God is to be the lamp that enlightens our understanding. 
And when you say, God designed the earth to be inhabited, Isaiah 45, 18, and the earth is unique, being made on day one as opposed to day four, and Jesus Christ came to earth and he took on flesh, and when we look through the entirety of scripture, we see different kinds of creatures and beings, but we don't see aliens. The word of God is to inform us as to our view as it relates to hypothetical aliens. And we need not concern ourselves with the fruitless speculations or intentional manipulations of an unbelieving world and the evil one who sways it. Rather, we should be concerned with the work of God on the earth and glorifying the Son of God who came to earth and died and rose on it. I want to conclude with two things. It is paramount. And I think any of you know this if you've been here for any amount of time. It's paramount not only that you know the right answers, to issues or questions or objections that people might issue. It's paramount that you know the Savior. Because if you know the right answers to the questions and to the objections and to the issues of the day, but you don't know the Savior, then you're lost. The good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to earth. The Son of God came to earth. He took on flesh. You need to know Him. This is eternal life. To know the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. You need to know Him. Well, how do I come to know Him? It happens through faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. If in a moment of time when you hear Jesus Christ presented, the Son of God who suffered under Pontius Pilate, the one who lived the perfect life, the one who went to a cross and died and rose again three days later, if your heart is moved and you say, I believe He is the Son of God, I believe He is the promised Messiah, the one who would come and die for the sins of His people, the one upon whom the wrath of Yahweh would be laid, the one who would satisfy the wrath of God, the one who would set the oppressed free, the one who is the Savior of the world, if you hear Him preached and you start to say in your heart and mind, I believe, I believe in that one. The scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how it happens. That's how you enter into that relationship. It's the Spirit of God who by the grace of God brings you to that point. It's the Spirit of God who so works in you to open your eyes to that glorious truth. And then in that moment when you are justified by faith, you are no longer at enmity with God. You in that moment, you are at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit taking up residence in you will continue to lead you and guide you in truth. He will illuminate the Word of God which is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And you will desire the things of God. You will turn away from the sin that you once loved. And you will begin to pursue God and holiness out of a response to the grace of the gospel. It is. If you're a Christian, it's paramount to know the right answers. Yes, there's a a place for that. Because we have to be ready to give a reason for the faith uh, and the hope that is within us. But it is paramount for those who have not come to this place yet to know the Savior. And I conclude also with saying, I hope you feel the way I do and saying, what an honor it is to have God's word. You probably came in today, not you probably, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know. But you might not have thought that the Bible spoke so vividly to the topic of, say, aliens. (laughs) And it does, I think, rather clearly. What an honor it is to have the word of the living God. 
Let us cherish it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that despite our sins and how they are many, your mercy is more. And we rejoice in the Son of God who came to this earth, the perfect, spotless Lamb who was slain so that sinners like us might be forgiven. And though our sin was as scarlet, we've been made white as wool through the blood of the Lamb. Thank You for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Thank You for the Son of God resurrected and ascended and seated at Your right hand. And Father, even as we go about from this day, Lord, we pray that You will help us to worship You in light of Your truth, in light of Your revelation, in light of the glory that is displayed in Your wisdom and in Your creation. Heavenly Father, help us to leave this place worshiping You. And Father, we do ask that You would continue to work in our hearts and our minds so that we would not be swayed through the philosophies of men and the empty uh, deceit that we see so often, and even described in Colossians 2.8, but then different versions of it in our own day. And help us to speak truth and love. Help us to take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father to preach the Gospel and the truth that is inseparable to it. Help us to be ready to give a reason, a biblical reason, for the hope that is within us and why we don't believe what so much of the culture teaches as truth when it is in fact not. And Father, help us to do it with humility, knowing that we in and of ourselves were nothing. But Father, help us to be faithful witnesses to the truth that we see and have been uh, so blessed to have knowledge of in Your Word. We ask these things for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.